Hello and welcome to South Asia Chat, a podcast brought to you by the Institute of South Asian Studies at the National University of Singapore. I am your host Ramita Ayer, a research analyst at the institute. Over the last few years, China has quickly increased its economic footprint in South Asia, most notably through the Belt and Road Initiative or the BRI. Apart from this, Beijing has also expanded its security, political, and people-to-people engagements across the region. Earlier this year, we also saw the Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi visit all countries in South Asia apart from Bangladesh and Bhutan. To understand China's role in South Asia and what it means for the subcontinent, I am joined by Ambassador Shiv Shankar Menon. Ambassador Menon has been a career diplomat who has served as National Security Advisor to Prime Minister Manmohan Singh. He has served as the Foreign Secretary and Indian Ambassador to China, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, and Israel. Ambassador Menon is also a distinguished visiting research fellow at ISAS. Welcome to South Asia Chat, Ambassador Menon. Thank you for having me. So, one of the main factors influencing China's in- engagements with South Asia has been the waxing and waning of its relations with India. Uh, India-China rivalry has intensified in recent years, with border skirmishes spilling over to issues of trade and security. In this regard, the Chinese Foreign Minister's unannounced visit to Delhi earlier this year, which was the first after the Galwan Valley clashes in May 2020, was a welcome move. Some experts have also observed that Wang Yi's visit signals a high-level Chinese political effort to improve relations at a time when global equations are rapidly changing due to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. What is your reading on this, and where does the India-China rivalry stand today? Uh, well, thank you. That's a very big question because uh, I think the Wang Yi visit, you're right, marked clearly. Uh, an attempt at least to manage the relationship. I don't know whether it represented a big effort to change the impasse, because nothing that came out subsequently, uh, either from the Chinese side or from the Indian side, suggested a fundamental shift in, in position or any big offers that were made by the Chinese side. But I think it was important, certainly tactically, because not only because of Ukraine, but also because this is a very significant year for China, with the 20th Party Congress coming, with uh, their relations with the U.S. not having stabilized, with the situation in the neighborhood, whether it's with Taiwan, whether it's with new governments in Japan, in South Korea. Uh, I think for China, there was clearly, and with domestic stress with the return of COVID, with the economy slowing, I think there was clearly a need to stabilize the periphery. And you've seen very active Chinese diplomacy this year in the immediate periphery with all the neighbors. With Russia, of course, you saw on February 4th how active it was. Uh, But this is a year where I expect the China, at least the leaders of China, will not want trouble around them until the party congress, which is very significant because for the first time Xi Jinping will probably get a third term, which is unprecedented. I mean, I think that's not a time for trouble. But whether China was willing to make a particular effort to break through the impasse in India-China relations, I'm not so sure, because if you look at the deployments on the border, they've redeployed. I mean, there was some drawdown during the winter 
when fighting is almost impossible at those heights and in those conditions. But uh, we're back to the kind of numbers and on the border, which is really unprecedented. Over 120,000 troops from both sides are lined up. Uh, there was no real offer or suggestion of change of the Chinese stance on the border. In fact, uh, propaganda, domestic propaganda about what happened at Galwan and so on is much stronger than ever before. Uh, and I didn't see the kind of political offers that, that would, would have made sense. So, yes, I, think, I see it more as a, an attempt to stabilize the periphery and India as a very important part of that periphery, uh, rather than as an attempt to break the impasse. Uh, moving to India's neighbor, Pakistan has emerged to be one of the most reliable partners for China in the region, especially due to the several problems that it has with India. But now Islamabad uh, is in a state of flux. Uh, how do you see the Pakistan-China relations planning out following the recent ouster of uh, Imran Khan as Pakistan's prime minister? Well, I think China-Pakistan relations are not dependent on who rules in Islamabad because ultimate political power and other power in Pakistan is, has been and is likely to remain with the Pakistan army. Uh, and that is a fundamental fact of both Pakistani and Chinese lives. And the China-Pakistan relationship, the foundation steady right through for decades, and in fact, for more than half a century, has been that core relationship between the Pakistan army and China. And whether it was China's assistance to Pakistan's nuclear program from the mid-70s onwards, or whether it's arms supplies, whether it's their coincidence of interest in Afghanistan when the Soviets invaded, or again now, uh, these, these are fundamental. So they don't change very much, nor does Pakistan's dependence, which has grown over time, economic and other dependence and political dependence on China. So, so I don't think that the change in government, especially a government which has a short tenure, which facing elections in Pakistan in, in a year, year and a half, uh, you know, I don't think that's going to affect the core of the relationship. Besides, there's a strong strategic congruence there between the two. And Pakistan's importance to China has only grown. As China's ambition and role in the neighborhood has increased, Pakistan has become more important. Not just as a counterweight to India or a check on India, but also as China does Belt and Road, tries and finds ways to the sea which avoid the first island chain containment by the US that as she finds that she's driving Belt and Road into Central Asia, Afghanistan becomes important. Pakistan works with China in trying to manage what comes out of Afghanistan. Pakistan also becomes her channel towards the Muslim world, towards West Asia. Uh, given what's happening in Xinjiang, for instance, Pakistan's support and to the Chinese government and what's happening in Xinjiang is very important to her because it also brings along other, uh, other members of the Organization of Islamic Countries. Uh, so Pakistan serves several needs. And uh, uh, I, now China pays a price for this. 
in terms of Chinese lives. There have been terrorist attacks on Chinese for many years. Uh, China has invested very heavily in the China-Pakistan economic corridor. I think her commitment is over $62 billion. Uh, some of those projects don't make much economic sense. In fact, China and Pakistan is having trouble repaying some of those loans. But, but Pakistan has guaranteed, has given a sovereign guarantee to guarantee a certain rate of return, 16% on some of those power plants to China. So there's a whole host of interests now operating, which are much more important. And the bigger the role that China sees for herself, whether it's in the Indian Ocean or whether it's protecting the sea lanes that bring the oil to China from the Middle East, from the Gulf, uh, Pakistan, Gwadar as a possible, or Jivani as a potential military base, becomes much more important to China. And so that congruence is pretty solid. And given Pakistan's secular economic decline, China has become more and more important to Pakistan as well. So it's mutual. And it's unlikely to change just because the government in Islamabad changes. And even on the Chinese side, this has been consistent since the last days of Chairman Mao and thereafter. I mean, every, whether it was reformist China under Tang or whether you're now seeing a much more assertive, outgoing China under Xi Jinping, either way, the Pakistan relationship has stayed rock solid. It's the one relationship, actually, which has not varied over time, has only been strengthened. I don't think you can say that about any other Chinese relationship, not even North Korea. So, so I see the basic drivers of that relationship actually having gained strength over time. And I don't see that changing very easily in the near future, just because of what happens in Pakistani politics. China has put up with instability in Pakistani politics for a very long time and has worked with whoever is in power in Islamabad. But ultimate power they know and everyone knows is with the army. So you mentioned Afghanistan, where we've seen that China has been looking for ways to increase its engagements. Uh, following the Taliban takeover in 2021, China was the first foreign country to pledge emergency humanitarian aid to Kabul. And um, the country has also maintained direct contact with the Taliban administration ever since the takeover. What are China's strategic interests in Afghanistan and what are the geopolitical implications of increasing its presence in the country? Well, I think uh, China has three fundamental strategic interests in Afghanistan that I can think of. Uh, Afghanistan in history is the crossroads of, of Central Asia. And traditionally, empires in Afghanistan have, have prospered because they have been the center of of all the cross, crossing trade routes across Eurasia, which connects South Asia with Central Asia, East Asia with West Asia, and so on. I mean, the old Silk Roads, which was plural, actually most of them went through Afghanistan. And as a result, today, when China is trying to build out BRI and connectivity, uh, which Ukraine might have made much more difficult, Afghanistan becomes very strategically important to China. If BRI is to be a success, it needs to go through. I mean, the geography leads one through Afghanistan. But China has a more immediate problem with Afghanistan for the last few years because of the way that Afghan politics has developed. Uh, 
It's the extremism, the terrorism that comes out of Afghanistan and the support for uh, radical elements in Xinjiang, in China itself, which uh, they have enjoyed in Afghanistan, not just originally maybe from Al-Qaeda and from, from other groups, but also from Haqqani Network, from, from Taliban elements, uh, because the Taliban is, is not just one single unified party. It's increasingly a group of various commanders and young people who young leaders who, who are very ideological and support uh, so-called terrorist groups from Xinjiang, from Chechnya, from, from Central Asia across the board. So for China's goal, and China has consistently worked, and this is not new, she has consistently maintained links with the Taliban. With I mean, the Chinese ambassador was the only one apart from the Pakistani who I know met with Mullah Umar, for instance, in the old days when Mullah Umar didn't meet any foreigners. But so this is traditional Chinese policy, to stay in touch with everyone and try and limit the damage that comes to them. You working through Pakistan, using Pakistan's influence, doing whatever they can bilaterally. Thirdly, China has an economic interest in, in Afghanistan. Afghanistan is rich in resources in resources which the world needs increasingly. I mean, strategic resources like lithium and so on, apart from coal and, and iron ore. And, and China has contracted, but not actually exploited any of these for several years because of the security situation in Afghanistan. Uh, they may have hoped that the Taliban coming to power would actually settle things and things would, would improve uh, but of course, that hasn't quite happened yet, because partly the Taliban have not so far lived up to the promises they've made to stop supporting terrorists and extremist groups, uh, which operate in other countries and their neighbors, uh, nor have they actually brought peace entirely. I mean, you can see the bombings by the Islamic State and by others in, in Afghanistan, attacks on the Shias, it's still a very unsettled country. So from a Chinese point of view, while they might have these strategic interests in Afghanistan and will work with whoever they can work with in order to achieve these, whether it's the Taliban, whether it's Pakistan, whoever it is, uh, for a long time they worked with the US uh, in the past. Uh, but uh, I, it doesn't seem likely that they're about to realize these interests or to have smooth sailing in trying to implement them and to get their way in Afghanistan. Uh, in that sense, the Chinese are no different from anyone else, I think, who has interests in Afghanistan. So China has also been expanding its cooperation with the island states in the subcontinent. Uh, Sri Lanka and the Maldives, which are strategically well located in the Indian Ocean, have seen an intensification of the Indochina rivalry in recent years. As small states, these islands have also witnessed their engagements with the two giants closely intertwined with their domestic politics. How do you see this dynamic playing out in the coming years? Also, in the case of Sri Lanka, how is China likely to respond to the political and economic turmoil in the country, given that the Rajapakshas were close to China? Uh, you know, the, Hu Jintao, I think it was, who said that China has not only a Malacca dilemma, but a Hormuz dilemma. Because, and 
ever since China turned to the sea, which she didn't have much choice about, because if you have an economy which depends on exports and imports, and I mean, even now, if you look at the first four months of this year, the trade surplus of $241 billion accounts for 4% of China's GDP. That's no joke. Uh, so China has turned to the sea, and the Indian Ocean has become very important to China because it brings her energy supplies, her oil and gas through from the Gulf in the Middle East, uh, also because her trade flows through these areas for the same reason that the South China Sea is important to India. 38% of our trade goes through the South China Sea, but China's trade in return goes through the Indian Ocean. And, and as of now, China has does not have the means to secure her trade routes entirely herself, uh, not even in the seas near China, where she has changed the balance, but not completely. But in the meantime, she has relied on cultivating political and other relationships in the Indian Ocean region, both with the literal states and with the island states, with Sri Lanka, with the Maldives. And unlike the past, in the last decade or so, a little less than a decade, she has shown a willingness to take sides in their internal politics and to support one side or the other. You mentioned the Rajapaksas, it's the same thing in the Maldives, in Nepal as well. There's a willingness to take a higher degree of political risk by being identified with one side or the other. But you'll notice whenever their friend loses power, they're equally quick to switch to whoever else gains power. Uh, I mean, they're, they're practitioners of real politique. So, and that's what you see happening in... So, and China unfortunately, has not shown the kind of commitment that uh, other states have shown. Sri Lanka today has an economic crisis, foreign debt crisis. A large part of that debt is to China, actually. Uh, but China has been one of the slowest to respond. Uh, India was relatively quick. Yes, providing credit lines, this is a band-aid. It, it doesn't solve the problem. But uh, even the rescheduling of Sri Lankan debt, which have been spoken about now for three years, raised in the G20. I mean, there's, Sri Lanka is not the only country. Or Pakistan's debt to China, for instance. Uh, China so far hasn't done that. And even the limited measures that can just tide Sri Lanka or Pakistan over, you know, credit lines, putting money in their central banks, just parking it there. Those kinds of things China has not done yet, has taken her time about doing. She might have her other preoccupations, but it suggests that there are limits to Chinese influence and willingness to actually back up and invest in that influence and to maintain that influence for the present. Over the longer term, of course, the trend line is clear. The Chinese influence is growing. China's economic clout matters more and more. But it will take a while before China is a real military presence in the Indian Ocean region. And when, until she is politically comfortable in dealing with the, well, pretty explosive politics of most of these countries that she's dealing with, they're all used to, to change. Uh, whether it's Maldives, whether it's Sri Lanka, whether it's Pakistan, whether it's Nepal. 
And I think that's not something that the Chinese are used to in their own system. So maybe it'll take them a while to learn how to navigate these these kinds of political quicksands. They learn over time. And that's not it's not that they won't. But today they're I think finding things a little more difficult than they anticipated. Uh, this, and I think, frankly, a problem like Sri Lanka's political and economic crisis right now, I think, is beyond, you know, most people's ability to actually deal with and settle. Focusing now on the Himalayan states of uh, Nepal and Bhutan, uh, being geographically situated between India and China, they have had to balance between these two these two powers for long. Can you share your views on their strategies in managing the two countries and as well as the role of China and India in them? Well, I think a, it's a bit of a myth that they've historically had to balance between the two because traditionally, uh, until 1950, until China occupied Tibet, they had borders, yes, with India, but with Tibet, not with China. It's only after China came in in 1950 that and at that stage, at least until the late 60s, early 70s, China's hold on Tibet was also not very, very strong. And China didn't have the capacity to project power or to actually influence them. Since then, the situation has changed. So we are actually in a situation where all of them, whether it is India learning to live with a border with China for the first time in history, or Nepal, Bhutan learning to live with the border with China for the first time in their history, or whether it's China learning to live with India, Nepal, Bhutan, and so on. Uh, and the fact of geography is that these are countries south of the Himalayas. So if you look at cultural affinity, you look at language, religion, they are tied south of the Himalayas in many ways many more ways than they are north of the Himalayas, where Bhutan has very close cultural links across the Himalaya. It's with Tibetan Buddhism and Tibetan culture rather than Chinese culture. So, so to pose it as purely, oh, they're balancing these two, I think we're all in the process of learning how to live with this situation. In historical terms, it's not a very long or ancient phenomenon, and it's also unprecedented. Uh, the Chinese have shown much more interest in getting involved in Nepalese politics, for instance, in the last decade or so, uh, actually playing a role in bringing the communist parties together, the Maoists and the UML, and then trying to get them to stay unified. Didn't succeed, but, you know, over the long run, let's see where it goes. It's you, Nothing is permanent in politics. So we have to see where, what they managed to do. Uh, from these countries' points of view, it's natural that they will, if their two big neighbors don't have good relations, they will play them off against each other, see what they can get out of them, out of each of them. But they will balance. They will not want to be either in one camp or the other, entirely dependent on each. They will use the, each, each one will use the other to keep the big powers honest, basically from their point of view. And you can't blame them. I mean, if you were in their position, you'd probably do the same. So it's, uh, so it's an interesting political dynamic. Uh, but a lot of it is going to be determined by the internal political di dynamic in these countries. 
rather than as of now i mean chinese power south of the himalayas is still limited compared to what they would like uh, and at the same time i think the demands that india makes on these countries are much less than maybe they were before so we have to see how how this develops uh, but i for me it's less so much balancing as uh, the normal business of politics between them all among other states in south asia bangladesh seems to have found the formula of navigating the indo china rivalry in the subcontinent so in its path to economic development dhaka seems to be promoting its interests independent of the two major powers these have included through um, extending of loans to smaller countries in the subcontinent investing overseas and progressively also signing uh, preferential trade agreements How, do, do you think this signals a change in regional dynamics where the smaller countries are now moving away from relying on india as the primary provider in the region and what role does china play in this i think bangladesh has always diversified her relationships and has always worked with others uh yes india and china over the last two decades have kept switching places as bangladesh's biggest trading partner so it's not a new development that that you know india becomes number 2 becomes number 1 or china becomes number 1 that's i think given in the situation bangladesh what bangladesh has done brilliantly is to actually use whatever is enabling in the environment to promote her own development I and mean, she is a great development success she has a higher per capita income than india certainly than pakistan she has some of the best growth rates and in terms of women's participation in the labor force in terms of most criteria uh you know most developmental criteria bangladesh is a great success so uh i think bangladesh is probably a good example for the other for india's other smaller neighbors of how to both open to india because this has also been the decade where bangladesh's economy has been more integrated with india and where she has opened up more to india than ever before and so she's done both she's actually used everything that's that helps her own development including opening up to the indian economy uh today for instance we exchange power we have power lines between india and bangladesh we've settled about the enclaves and so on on the border all the little problems that we had we cooperate on mutual security we've reopened inland waterways and transport between the two countries uh chitagong port is actually handling cargo for india uh there's a whole host of things going on over the last decade which have made a big difference both to bangladesh and to india and leaves india much more comfortable so that even when bangladesh is doing things with say china and so on uh india doesn't feel therefore threatened in the way that it's not china displacing india because the indian relationship is growing at the same time it's bangladesh using whatever can help her to develop and that i think frankly is it's a good thing from everyone's point of view i mean nobody wants a bangladesh that's an economic 
basket case. It's certainly it's not in the Indian interest. And the better she does, the happier India should be. Finally, we've seen a growing interest in the Indo-Pacific, especially uh, from countries in the West. Groupings such as the Quad, which has Australia, India, Japan, and the United States, and the newly formed AUKUS, which has the, uh, Australia, the United Kingdom, and the United States, are aimed at keeping a check on uh, the rise of China in the region. The Chinese, on their part, recently announced the Global Security Initiative. What do you make of these initiatives, and how do you, such uh, groupings have an impact on China's relations with South Asia? You know, the Chinese have moved in their description of things like the Quad used to be called foam on the ocean or something, originally as though it was dismissible. Now suddenly it's become incipient Asian NATO or something, something really serious. Uh, a lot of this is posturing. I mean, it's not as though Quad is a military alliance. It's not a NATO. There's no commitment to mutual defense. There's no Article 5 like NATO. There's, and in fact, what it's doing in terms of public goods, whether it's maritime security, whether it's you know safety at sea, whether it's vaccines, whether it's resilient supply chains, I mean, this, frankly, I mean, who can object to? It's like motherhood and apple pie. It's not, it's not something that... So, and yet, I think China finds it useful to set up this bogeyman, this straw bogeyman, no, not one Quad member will say in public that the Quad is designed to contain China or to limit China's options. China seems to think it does. But what it amounts to is really there is naturally a competition for influence and for friends in the, in the region. And this is natural because the center of of gravity of global politics of the global economy is now here whether wherever you call it whatever you call it indo-pacific asia pacific whatever this is where this is also where all the flashpoints hot spots are and the big issue here is accommodating china's rise the sudden accumulation of power in china's hands which she seems to be using in assertive ways in her neighborhood and many of what you see, Quad, AUKUS, and so on, is a response to that. TPP was a response to that as well. It was the economic response. But all these things evolve over time because each of us also has major stakes in our relationship with China. Each member of the Quad and most of China's neighbors, for whom all of whom have China as their biggest trading partner now, except Afghanistan and Bhutan everyone else. So uh, what I think there's two levels at which you need to analyze this. One is the actual balance of power, which is a reality. Where China is a regional power, she's not even dominate, dominant in her immediate neighborhood in Northeast Asia, because there are other powers like Russia, like Japan, like the Koreas, two Koreas, and the US who are present in force. But she's a huge economic and the dominant economic power in, in the Asia-Pacific, Indo-Pacific. And so you have this mismatch where the balance of power, the military and the political balance of power, because China has no, no real allies in this region, 
unless you count Pakistan and North Korea. The military and political balance of power is quite different from the economic balance of power, and that's part of the source of the trouble. So China will oppose, therefore, what she sees as attempts to impose the political military balance as, and she sees those as attempts to constrain her freedom of action, because what she wants is primacy in her, what she regards as her region. She's told herself this mythical history of an imagined past where China was number one and ran the world, which, I mean, it's mythical, but that's what they're operating on. So, so you have the reality of the actual balance of power, and you have the mythology of the rhetoric about Quad, about AUKUS, and so on. Where they meet is like AUKUS, which actually threatens the balance in the seas near China. I mean, if Australia has nuclear submarines, attack submarines operating there, then China's security calculus in the near seas changes fundamentally. So we have to see how this plays out because the balance of power is shifting every day. So is the political balance. I mean, it varies. Uh, you've just seen a new government being elected in the Philippines, which everyone expects to be more friendly to China. So whereas in South Korea, it's gone the other way. Uh, so we have to see how this develops. But I think we shouldn't be confused by the rhetoric and the shadow play. Uh, I think we need to watch actually what countries are actually doing and the real balance of power if we really want to get a sense of what's happening. Thank you for sharing your insights, Ambassador Menon. You were listening to South Asia Chat. To learn more about our work, visit us at isas.nus.edu.sg. You can also get updates through social media. We're on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram. <laughs>